Welcome to A Brief Chat. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 216 for December 3rd, 2021. On this week's show, Rick Schober of Tough Poets Press. It's probably pretty obvious that I am recording this on my phone. It's just kind of the way the day has worked out as I've been getting toward the end of the day and uh, getting ready to edit this episode. I've actually already done the editing portion of it in a grocery store cafe and uh, that was a difficult place to record, so I just came out to the car, quickly did this intro so that I could go back in and finish it. As you may have picked up from my uh, social media this week, or my newsletter, or if you're a member of the Patreon, I have decided to bring my van life to an end after Christmas. I'm going to move to Albany, New York. I'm going to try to live a quieter life. Uh, without social media and without doing a lot of the things that I have been doing for the last 30 years and I guess 25 years. And I'm also going to just get a normal job and an apartment and spend some time putting some stability into my life so that I can figure out what else it might contain. I'm going to keep making this podcast, and there will still be a Patreon, and if you want to support that, you can go to patreon.com slash vanarchism. You will get early access to all the episodes, and you'll get a bonus show, and at least for a while still, you'll continue to get my regular notes to my Patreon subscribers, but I think things will kind of quiet down, and also probably the, the levels of the Patreon will change once I get settled. Uh, today, as I'm recording this intro, as a matter of fact, is my one-year anniversary of living in a van, and I'm glad I did it. I also know that I'm just not in a place right now where it's a sustainable lifestyle for me, and I just need, I just need a place. I just need a place with a bathroom and running water, and uh, um, you know, maybe a, a dog, <laughs> and uh, do I want to have a regular job? No, but um, I'd rather for a while have some financial stability, and that's what I need. So anyway, so glad you're here to listen to this, and I'm really, uh, really psyched about this week's show. It's a cool interview with a guy who's just doing some amazing work that I really appreciate and have uh, followed and supported for years before this episode ever happens. So I'm excited to be able to uh, to get his message out to the folks who listen to this. So let's dive in to my chat with Rick Schober. Rick Schober, welcome to A Brief Chat. Well, thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I am a big fan of what you do, which is to run Tough Poets Press. Um, I think I've backed seven or eight books on Tough Poets Press, uh, starting back with the very first one, which is how I found out about you, because it was uh, Gregory Corso-based, and I'm a fan of, of his work. And I thought we should probably start right at the top and just tell folks what Tough Poets Press is. Well, um, it's a very small uh, independent publishing company. I mean, it's basically me. Uh, the types of books I publish are typically, you know, neglected, out-of-print works, uh, ones that are very difficult to find used copies of. Um, I've published a few um, books by, you know, new authors, uh, poets. And... Um, you know, basically, it's a it's a marginally profitable hobby for me right now. 
how did you first come up with the idea? I've always loved books. I've collected books for years. Um, I've been a graphic designer for maybe 35, 40 years. And I really wanted to get into um, book cover design. A few years ago, I realized that nobody's going to hire me to do that. So I decided to uh, start my own press, basically just so I could uh, design book covers. <laughs> and um, like you said, the first book I published was uh, collected interviews with Gregory Corso called The Whole Shot. I had uh, read collections of interviews with uh, the other major beats, you know, Kerouac, Burroughs, Ginsburg, and no one had uh, collected the interviews of Corso. So I figured, uh, why not you know, be the one to do it? I spent like five years collecting uh, the interviews, you know, just tracking them down through, you know, various uh, publications, uh, spent a lot of time at the Boston Public Library. In the end, I ended up with a you know, pretty good collection. And I don't know how I found out that you were doing it, but I, I mean, I did at the time you were doing it, and I don't know if I had a search set up for his name. I don't think so. I, I have no idea how you came across my radar, but I was so excited that someone was doing what you were doing. And one question I had even uh, even back then, was, and, and it has continued now to this day when you have published works that have been published before, but as you said, are, are in many cases are kind of neglected works, things that have fallen off people's radar and are out of print. But one question I had about whether it's Corso or any of these other authors is is rights issues, because as a essentially a one-man press, that that's always seemed to me like it could be a, a kind of a steep hill to climb, is just getting the rights to these works. Can you talk about that a little? Yeah, sure. Well, with um, the Corso interviews, a few of them were in the public domain. They had been um, published in, you know, small magazines, newspapers, and the copyrights had never been reviewed, uh, renewed. Uh, others, I had to track down the interviewers and get their permission. In some cases, uh, they let me, you know, reprint them for free. Others, you know, I had to uh, pay some usage rights. But, you know, some of the books that I've published are in the public domain, uh, you know, published before 1964, copyright never renewed, uh, which is great because I don't have to pay anybody any royalties. Uh, with others, you know, there's quite a bit of detective work involved, you know, tracking down uh, literary estates or, you know, surviving heirs of, um, you know, the authors getting their permission one of the questions that might occur to folks is, my gosh, it sounds expensive to do this. And in fact, that's uh, one of the cool things about the way that you do this. And I'm sure it is <laughs> maybe expensive in its own way. But uh, you do a lot of this via Kickstarter. And uh, those of us who back these uh, projects, you know, at particular amounts, get a copy of the book and uh, you put the names of the backers in it, which is always quite nice. And uh, it's a it's a cool system and it a system that essentially, you know, creates and verifies its own market for the books, it seems to me. How did you have the idea in the beginning to start crowdfunding this press? I do not have a lot of disposable income. I never have. Um, and I had, um, you know, been aware of Kickstarter. I, I had backed a couple of other uh, publishing projects in the past. And I figured it was, you know, a perfect platform for what I was doing. 
uh, first, you know, validated what I was doing. If there was enough interest in a book publishing project, then it would be funded. And, um, you know, so far I have not uh, had to spend a penny of my own money up front with the exception of, you know, maybe purchasing some, uh, you know, used copies of, of books to, you know, scan and reformat. But, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's a marginally uh, profitable hobby right now. <laughs> marginally profitable hobbies. It's just such a great phrase. <laughs> if, if, if I wanted, if, if I wanted to make a decent living off of what I'm doing, I'd have to probably, uh, increase my output tenfold. And th- my guess is that would also decrease the enjoyment uh, proportionate amount, do you think? Well, uh, as it is now, I, I, I can produce like a typically. Uh, if I did more than that, um, I would probably have to hire some some people, and that's, that's definitely out of the question right now. <laughs> So uh, let's talk about some of the authors you've published uh, about whom folks might not have heard. Uh, Gregory Corso, I think, is at least famous enough among probably the kind of people who are going to listen to this show uh, that a lot of folks will have heard his name. But in the years since, you've you've published many books, and uh, certainly quite a number of them were by people of whom I'd never heard, including ones that I backed you know, with really no knowledge of the contents of the book or who the author was just because they looked interesting. And actually, that's even that's true of even the most recent uh, book of yours that I backed, which I think is also the most recent one you've published, which is Wendy Walker's The Secret Service. Uh, I had never heard of the book, nor had I ever heard of Wendy um, when your email came uh, to, to previous backers. Uh, so maybe we could even just start right there with the most recent one. How did you come across Wendy? And if, if this is just my own ignorance and everybody knows who Wendy Walker is, you feel free to correct me. But how did you come across this book and decide to republish it? I don't think anybody knows who Wendy Walker is. There is actually like a another novelist named Wendy Walker, who's far more famous. She writes uh, like uh, thrillers or something like that. But uh, this, this Wendy Walker came to my attention uh, through George Salas, who you might be aware of. Uh, he's a writer. He uh, runs a literary blog called The Kaleidoscope. And uh, he and I have been like, uh, I guess you'd say book buddies, uh, for a while, uh, he uh, reviewed the reissue of Patricia Eakins' The Hungry Girls and Other Stories, which I had published uh, a couple of years ago. And um, since then, he has, you know, interviewed uh, a couple other uh, authors who I subsequently published, um, Johnny Stanton's uh, Mangled Hands, and Wendy Walker. He interviewed Wendy Walker, um, suggested to me that this was a great book that needed to be uh, back into print. I I got a copy uh, relatively inexpensively. read it. It was amazing. an incredible book. You know, she is uh, quite amenable to having it uh, back in print. That's how that happened. One of the things I really like about Tough Poets is that they're 
there doesn't really seem to be a theme. That's always caused me to wonder, and you've you've shed some light on that in terms of Wendy's book, but how you even know about some of the things that you put out. I mean, because you're kind of in the same boat that all the rest of us are, and you know, once these things are out of print, there it's it's unlikely that they float across someone's radar except by chance almost. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I probably spend more time reading about books on the internet than I do reading books themselves. Um, there are a couple of great uh, websites, uh, neglectedbooks.com. Uh, Goodreads has a discussion group. Uh, I think it's called buried books. And, you know, they're all about these like, you know, works that, you know, people really enjoyed uh, that have basically, uh, you know, dropped off the the radar. And so I got a a lot of, um, you know, ideas from from those sites. And then people who have, you know, read other Tough Poets press reissues have uh, suggested books that I've published. Um, for instance, there's this guy, Jack Mearns, who's a psych professor at Cal State. Uh, I, I published um, The Water Wheel by and Shapiro, and he's the executor of his literary estate. But since then, he's, he's suggested a couple of titles. Um, Myron Brennig's uh, Flutter of an Eyelid, one of them, and... Uh, most recently, uh, this book called Movie Land by Spanish surrealist uh, Ramon Gomez de la Serna, which I'll be publishing early next year. And tell me something about that. Um, it, it's a strange book. Uh, it's a fictitious account of Hollywood in the late 20s, early 30s the end of the, uh, you know, silent film era. Uh, it's not your typical novel. There's no like linear plot. It's, it's all these little vignettes. Um, each, each line of the book, each paragraph is like a, a little poem in itself. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, um, it's strangely entertaining. Uh, the, the writing is great. I mean, it was originally written in Spanish, and, and the uh, the guy who translated it into English did an incredible job. I like the idea that people who are like that you're kind of forming a community. That there's this tough poets press group of people who come back again and again, uh, and who are who now feel connected enough to the work that you're doing that they are suggesting things for you to publish that that just seems like it seems like a, the best possible way to to create an audience for your work and to have that audience feel like they're like they have a stake in it uh they do um you know they have a financial stake in it as well uh you know they make the publications possible through their um you know contributions or you know backing the projects so are there 
have you received kind of responses from uh you know in the case of authors maybe who aren't with us anymore from the from the families after seeing the books in print again or from fans or you know people who thought i'll never be able to get my hands on this again has there been feedback that has surprised or delighted you as you've been doing this process oh yeah definitely uh got a lot of good feedback um like you said people who you know thought some of these books would never be back in print uh have emailed me this you know say thanks you know i can finally get my hands on a copy um the one of the uh you know best responses i got was the uh only of gil orlovitz uh he had uh published two novels in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, uh, Ice Never F and Milk Bottle H. Uh, and, you know, legend has it that um, at, at the time, they really wanted to have nothing to do with their father's legacy. I mean, he was a, a serious alcoholic and apparently didn't treat the family well at all. But I you know, wanted to publish his work, you know, it's, it's experimental. It's, it's, it's highly imaginative. Uh, and so I found a number of his short stories, uh, which had been published in, you know, small literary magazines prior to 1964 copyrights were never renewed. So they were in the public domain. And I put together a collection of, um, those as along with some of his earlier poems, uh, called it, uh, what are they all waiting for? Which was the title of one of the short stories. And I sent a copy to, uh, one of his sons that I had, you know, found through Facebook, not asking for permission, but, you know, just to tell them that I was doing this, uh, and, you know, basically asking for their blessing, uh, of, of his estate and they, they liked what I did. And so, um, they were, you know, far more amenable to seeing, uh, their late father's, uh, novels in print. And, uh, so they gave me permission. Uh, the only, uh, condition was that one of the sons wanted to, uh, design the book covers and, you know, there was a small price to pay. I typically like to do the cover designs myself, but I mean, this this guy did a great job. Uh, his son Ethan Orlovitz, and uh, you know, his cover designs were very you know abstract, geometric, very fragmented looking, which accurately uh, you know reflected the the style of the writing. I really like the cover designs of your books, and obviously, except with a few exceptions, you've done them. And actually, one of the things about Tough Poets Press, um, you know, I've I've backed other books on various crowdsourcing campaigns, and some of those books you then receive, and they, you know, seem like labors of love, but not not particularly professionally designed or created artifacts. And that's never the case with Tough Poets, where everything that arrives, you know, I know that it's a guy in Massachusetts that cre- created this thing that I'm holding, <laughs> but it feels like it's uh, 
a, a larger entity, you know, and I don't, I don't mean that in what, you know, in whatever other corporate way it could mean, but I just mean it. They always feel really professional. The designs are really cool. Uh, they're really arresting to look at in a lot of cases. And I mean, one that just jumps out. So I live and travel in a minivan and I have about 20 physical books with me. And I think three of them are tough poets books. And one of the covers that I often catch sight of when I'm in the van and I really like is the one for the land that touches mine um, by John Sanford. But there are many examples I could I could point to of of the covers. So can you talk a little bit about the design? It's it's I imagine kind of a fun part of the process, because in a universe of images, uh, figuring out what's going to represent this book is it's it's quite a question to answer. Well, it it probably is the most fun part about uh, publishing the books. Uh, and like I said, it's what really, you know, inspired me to start my own press. I wanted to design book covers. Um, I always admired the work of, you know, the guy who did like all the Grove Press uh, covers, Roy Coleman. I think he did like 700 of them. But there are, you know, other... Uh, Cover designers like Paul Rand, Alvin Lustig, uh, who else? Milton Glaser. I mean, all, all these you know beautiful pieces of art that could you know stand alone, whether they were a cover of a book or not. Um, and, and like I said, um, you know, I have a background in graphic design. Uh, I've worked for one uh, soulless corporate entity after another over the years. Uh, <laughs> So I, I was familiar with, you know, the tools needed to put books together um, in Adobe InDesign for the, you know, the page layouts. I, you know, done a lot of corporate newsletters in the past, so I knew how to use that. Photoshop, uh, obviously. Uh, so I was able to, you know, apply the skills that I had acquired as a uh, you know, corporate drone uh, into my own business. So uh, you mentioned one of the books that you have coming up. Do you, are there any other things that are kind of in the hopper for the next year or so that you might give us a little uh, sneak peek about? Donald Newlove. I, I've published a couple of his books. I did reissue of uh, Sweet Adversity, which is his, his masterpiece. Uh, probably my favorite book of all the ones that I've published so far. Uh, and I did uh, one of his unpublished novels, The Wolf Who Swallowed the Sun. But uh, he recently passed away at like age 92 back in September. And so there has been sort of a, a resurgence of interest in his work. I mean, he got this huge uh, obituary in the New York Times. But he published or he wrote this, this great memoir called Those Drinking Days, Myself and Other Authors, uh, which the, the first half of which is, you know, autobiographical. It's all about his uh, struggles with alcohol and you know, how it affected his writing. And the second half of the book are these essays on other authors who had uh, drinking problems. Great book. Um, you know, you can come across copies relatively uh, inexpensively online, but uh, it really needs uh, a wider audience. It, it deserves it. It's, it's one of the best memoirs I've ever read. 
Well, that's absolutely caught my attention, so I'm I'm excited to see that one. And one thing that I haven't said during the course of this interview, but I do want to make clear, is uh, you can get these books even if you're not part of the initial Kickstarter. I want to make sure folks realize that that these these books are are purchasable after the fact. Obviously, you can back them during the Kickstarter, but these all exist out in the world for for folks to pick up, and uh, I definitely encourage you to do so. Yeah, sure. They're all um, print on demand. Uh, and the the company I use for printing, Ingram Spark, has a distribution deal with uh, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, uh, all, you know, all kinds of online retailers. So yeah, they're 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 all in print. Probably never go out of print since they're print on demand. Uh, but you know, the the perk of you know backing the Kickstarter is you get the book at like a ninety nine cent discount. Uh, free shipping. If you're in the United States, you get your name in the back of the book. In most cases, uh, sometimes the authors don't want that, and you know you get them before they're uh, available to the general public. Rick, where does the name Tough Poets Press come from? Um, well, back in the '80s, uh, I was in a band uh, with a couple of friends from from school, high school, college, and. Uh, you know, we were throwing names around, and uh, one of our friends uh, thought Tough Poets would be a good name. And we we ultimately settled on uh, Dislocated Hipsters for some reason. But uh, that, that name always stuck with me. And when it came time to, you know, name my publishing business, I thought Tough Poets Press would be great, especially since, you know, the first... The book I published was, uh, you know, Gregory Corso's interviews, and you know he's the embodiment of uh, a tough poet. And then, um, you know, shortly after that, I was reading a book by Haruki Murakami. I think it was a uh, dance, dance, dance. Pretty sure it was that one. And there's, there's a line in there. It says, "Surely the world's got to have tough poets too." And so that kind of solidified it for me. Oh, that's fabulous. <laughs> that's a great origin story. And are there are there kind of literary influences for the press that you can point to? Well, um, back when I was in, you know, college, um, or shortly thereafter, I really got into uh, book collecting. And, um, you know, what I really enjoyed reading were what I call the three Bs, you know, the Beats, Brodigan, and Bukowski. And, you know, everything else that I've read and really enjoyed since then has been somewhat related, uh, you know, to those uh, authors, Um, you know, others that I've really enjoyed, like uh, Herman Hess, uh, Newt Hampson, uh, Henry Miller, uh, Vonnegut, of course. And as we... Uh, kind of draw to a close here. What's the best way for folks to get notified when there is a new Kickstarter? How do they how do they make sure that Tough Poets has their email address so that they find out when there's a new project to back? Uh, to be honest, I have no idea. <laughs> you know, I, I do post on social media. I mean, people can follow uh, Tough Poets Press on Instagram, uh, Facebook. Twitter, not so much Twitter, 
seem to get the best response from Instagram. Uh, but, you know, I do have um, a, a list of all my previous uh, uh, Kickstarter backers' emails. And so anytime I, you know, start a new project, I, I you know, send out an email blast. Um, you know, surprising. There, there are some people who have uh, backed everything that I, I've uh, far. People like yourself, seven, eight, you know, books. I mean, that's great. You know, it's, it's nice to have sort of a, a loyal following. I've been talking with Rick Schober from Tough Poets Press. You can check out uh, toughpoets.com for everything that the uh, press has published so far. You'll also find uh, links to the social media that Rick was just mentioning, and I'll put those links in the show notes of this show as well. Uh, Rick, I'm a big fan of what you do, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on the show and talk about it. Thanks for being here. Well, uh, really, thanks a lot. Um, it was it was a pleasure. Um, if you're ever in the Boston area with your van, feel free to, feel free to drop by. Be careful what you offer. Cause I am a definitely a drop buyer. I will I have dropped by on so many people who have said that exact phrase. So you've, you've now signed yourself up for a van visit. I'm from Massachusetts originally. So I do get back with, oh, really? with some frequency. So uh, yeah, I'll, uh, I'll definitely take you up on that and we can, we can talk books. Uh, thanks again, Rick. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening to this episode of A Brief Chat. You can support the show at patreon.com slash vanarchism. You'll get early access to every episode, a monthly bonus show, plus travel essays and photos and videos from my Vanarchism project, which chronicles my van travels across the U.S. Thank you, and I'll talk to you again next week. (laughs) 